You are listening to the preaching ministry of Christ Church San Antonio. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.christchurchsa.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Really fun to be with y'all. I've been, uh, we've worshiped with you three or four times probably here, but last time actually that we were here, it was to see Guardians of the Galaxy, and it was in this theater, which was kind of weird. So it's nice to be back in this theater uh, with God's people singing his praises, even though it was a good movie. It was lots of fun. We're going uh, to look at Psalm 133 today. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Psalm 133. This is, if your Bible has a little heading here, it probably says two things, that it was uh, of David, written by David, and also a psalm of ascents. This is not part of our marriage uh, series. There is no happily ever after today, so you can just pay no attention to the man behind the curtain there. We're looking at Psalm 133, a psalm of ascents. Now, let me give you a little bit of background to that. Uh, the psalms as a whole, the, the Psalter, as they're called, are really, you can think of it like a hymn book or like a song book that would have been used in worship. In fact, these psalms would have been sung mostly by by God's people, either in public or in private worship. So think about the, the Psalms themselves kind of like a hymn book. And then, you know, as we have songs in worship, we have some that are particularly for, for special occasions, for maybe seasons of the year. We have songs that we sing at Christmas. We have songs that we sing for particular uh, occasions. The Psalms of Ascent were actually cut out for a particular occasion. Four times a year, God's people in the Old Testament would travel no matter where they were in Israel or outside of Israel even, they would travel to Jerusalem for a festival, for four main feasts and festivals during the year. And as they were traveling, they would sing these psalms, psalms of ascent. So these are traveling songs. They are going to meet with God's people at the temple and they are going to celebrate something wonderful. So keep that in mind as we read this Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would open it to us this morning, that you would clear our eyes and open our ears and soften our hearts, that we might hear what you have to say to us. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would speak to me, that you would speak through me, that you would speak against me if necessary, that we might know what you want us to know this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna start with a question and just ask you, what is it that you think is beautiful? What do you consider beautiful? When I was a little boy, I grew up uh, around Houston and not in Houston, but in a, in a Houston suburb. But every now and then we would travel into Houston and go to like to the museums or go to Herman Park or go kind of into some of the real, you know, the center of the city. And there's this road in downtown Houston. It's actually right next to Rice University. In fact, I think it's Rice Boulevard. And I, and I distinctly remember traveling with my father, sitting in the front seat of his car, driving down this road because this, this road, is a div, it was a divided road with these huge, beautiful live oaks in the middle of the road and the branches would, would, would kind of just cascade over the road. And so as you were driving down the street, it felt like you were driving through this just tunnel of trees. 
and I was fascinated by it. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. So as a boy, I mean, it's just stuck with me for forever. Well, when we moved to Baton Rouge uh, four years ago, um, Baton Rouge has some really beautiful live oaks. And there's a street in a neighborhood that we lived in where there's these live oaks planted down the middle of the street and the branches kind of cascade over, uh, over the street so that it looks like you're driving through a tunnel of trees. Well, there's a house for sale on that street. And I gotta tell you, when we pulled into that street before we even saw the house, I knew I, we're buying this house because it just was so beautiful to me. It brought back so many wonderful memories. I just think that is so gorgeous. My wife loves to watch birds at a bird feeder. She loves to sit in the morning and drink her coffee and watch these birds eat and see the beautiful color of the birds and their amazing feathers and the way that they move in strange ways. Maybe for you, beautiful is a mountain landscape, being able to look off and see the Rockies imposing as they are, just huge and enormous in the distance. Or, or a beautiful mountain brook. Maybe there's a rainbow trout jumping that you'd like to catch. Or maybe beautiful for you is, uh, is a table spread with, few, with food and, and wonderfully appointed and vintage china and some cut flowers and beautiful linens and the amazing smells and flavors and colors of the food on a table. Maybe it's a symphony. Maybe it's the sound of a vintage guitar being played through a tube amplifier. Maybe that's what's beautiful to you. Well, in Psalm 133, actually, God gives us a picture of what is beautiful to him. We get a little glimpse of what God thinks is beautiful. And he calls us to behold, to look, to see what he thinks is beautiful so that we might actually think it's beautiful too. And what that is, is actually spelled out pretty plainly. Here's the main point of it all, is that God says that his people, when they get together, when they dwell together in unity, the interwoven lives of God's people are beautiful. When God's people get together, when Christians get together, God thinks that that's beautiful. He thinks that Christian community is one of the most beautiful things in the world. And you know, you've heard preachers do this. Well, they'll make a main point and then they'll give a couple of illustrations that'll help you understand that point. Guess what? David does the same thing for us. I don't even have to give illustrations because David does it for us. And he gives these two illustrations. One of an oily old man and one of a mountain you've probably never heard of. So we probably need to dig into these illustrations and see what's going on a little bit. So let's do that. Look at Psalm 133 for me again. Look at verse one and two. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. There's our illustration number one. It's oil running down the head of this man named Aaron. Aaron, okay? And the oil, and listen, I know that this sounds really weird to you. I mean, there, there is a time in, in, the, in the McCollum family where there's a very particular remembrance of oil on our heads. And it was when all of my children had lice and we had to rub olive oil all over their heads for like five nights in a row to try and get rid of the, of the lice. It was not beautiful, okay? It was disgusting. And so this sounds really odd to us when we think about oil running down somebody's head and down their beard in their beard and kind of on their shoulders and on their robes. So let's dig in a little bit and figure out uh, who is this guy Aaron and what is this oil that's running all over his head? Because they're both pretty special. The first is this, Aaron. Aaron is a man who we're introduced to in the book of Exodus early on in the Bible. He's the brother of Moses. And the Bible tells us he is the first high priest the high priest was the one who was called to intercede for the people, to be the mediator between the people of God and God himself. 
He is the one who would go and offer sacrifices to the Lord. He is the one who would enter the holiest place of the tabernacle and then later the temple. He's the one who would bring the sacrifices of the people to the Lord. A very, very important figure in the Old Testament. And Aaron is the first of this, but then his sons and their sons after them and their sons after them, great, great, great grandchildren would also carry on this tradition and they would be priests and there would always be a high priest. In fact, uh, as we talked about these Psalms of Ascent, people traveling to Jerusalem to go to, to one of the, uh, the great festivals, is this kind of scratchy, is that my fault? To go to one of these great festivals, uh, they would come and, and the person at the middle of the festival the person who was really leading the whole thing, who was, who was in charge of all of it, all of the ceremony, was the high priest. So this is a really important guy. And the oil, actually, that used, that's used is not the same kind of oil that was used to try and get rid of the lice on my kid's head. And it's not the kind of oil that we might use in salad dressing. It's a very particular kind of oil. So we have a particular man and a particular oil. In fact, I want you to just listen it's not going to be shown, and if you, if you want to look in your Bible, you can, or you can just sit back and listen to, to Exodus 29. We learn a little bit more about this oil. Here's Exodus 29, verse 4. This is God telling Moses what to tell the people. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with skillfully woven band of the ephod and you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. So he's dressed really well. He's got beautiful clothing on. He's got a beautiful hat on. And then is what it says. Uh, then you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. And you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So we're talking about an oil that's used for ordaining the high priests, for setting the high priest apart from anybody else. And then we go on to the next chapter, and we learn even a little bit more about this oil. Here's uh, Exodus 30, starting at verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all its utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils, and the basin, and its stand, and you shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. And then here, listen to this. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, it shall, and you shall not make any other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. What do we learn about this oil? Well, first of all, it smells amazing. Did you catch that? It's got all of these aromatic spices blended in it. They're supposed to be, they're supposed to smell great. It's supposed to fill the room with an overpowering aroma. Secondly, it's done by somebody who knows what they're doing. It's blended by a perfumer. 
by a professional craftsperson who's supposed to do the blending, who is expertly trained at making something that smells amazing. That's the second piece of it. The third piece is that it's totally unique. There's not supposed to be anything that smells like it. There's not supposed to be anything made like it again. And so when you walk into the temple and you see the high priest and you, you, this oil is poured down, it fills, the aroma of it fills the temple and it's something you've never smelled before. Like you smell it and you think, oh my goodness. The only time I remember smelling that was last year when I was here in the same place. It's incredible. And then lastly, did you catch this too? There's a lot of this oil going on. It's running down on his head, down on his beard, down on the shoulder of his robes. In fact, some translators even think that that's talking about the hem of his robe, that it's running all the way down his robes. Here's the picture, is that you are standing in the midst of a festival, of a celebration. There are lights, and there is music, and there are colors, and there are thousands of people gathered around. And the one person who's at the center of this, who's leading all of this gorgeous ceremony, has this beautiful hat on and this amazing robe, and it's expertly crafted. And this oil is pouring down him, and it's filling the whole room with this aroma that's incredible. This is, this is a sensual feast that's being talked about. And what the Bible says is that when God's people get together, it's beautiful like that. It's beautiful like that in that kind of deeply aesthetic and sensual way. Second illustration David gives us is of a mountain called Hermon. Look at verse three. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, for this, we need a little bit of a geography lesson because Israel, if you've ever seen a map or maybe you've been there, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of long and skinny. And, uh, and in the south, there's the Dead Sea. And in the north, there's the Sea of Galilee. And in between them, really connecting the two is the Jordan River. And Jerusalem is in the south, close to the Dead Sea. And there's some, some small mountains around there. They're the mountains of Zion. So when you hear these mountains of Zion, what you're talking about is the area around Jerusalem. In fact, very oftentimes, Jerusalem itself is just called Zion, and the temple is on one of these mountains, so oftentimes it's just referred to as Zion. So that's what we're thinking of when we're hearing Zion. And, and that area of Jerusalem in the, in, the, in the south, that area of Israel, is dry. It's Texas Hill Country dry. It's Arizona kind of dry, okay? Now, contrast that, though, to this other mountain that's being talked about, Mount Hermon, which is in the northern part of Israel, way up here north of the Sea of Galilee, actually in present-day Syria. It was and still is the highest peak in the region. In fact, it is capped with snow almost year-round. There is a ski resort on Mount Hermon right now, okay? So it is a tall mountain full of snow. Now, what do you get when you have a mountain that's capped with snow all the time? Well, in the morning the dew is pretty nice. It is, uh, it is, is wonderfully uh, uh, flourishing, right? There, there's lots of moisture there. And so what we're talking about is the difference between Baton Rouge, where we lived for the last four years, which is wet all the time, 100% humidity like every day, and the hill country of Texas, or Portland and Phoenix. That's the difference that we're talking about here, okay? Uh, and and what, what David says here, the picture that he gives us, it's actually something that's physically impossible, but just imagine it. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling down on, cascading over the mountains of Zion, making them lush and fruitful, watering the grass and the plants, making spring up beautiful flowers. It is a picture of flourishing that is, impo is physically impossible. It is almost unimagined. 
But what God says here in Psalm 133 is that when his people get together, it is beautiful like that. It is beautiful in a way that leads to deep flourishing. It is beautiful in a way that leads to fruitfulness. It is beautiful in a way that's like the dew of Hermon coming down and cascading, pouring down on this dry desert of Zion. When God's people get together, when their lives are intertwined with one another, when the people of God are living together and their lives are shared in harmony, it is beautiful to the Lord. And he is calling us to behold that, to see it as beautiful, and to transfer what we think is beautiful to what God thinks is beautiful. Now, let me just say that many of you, I think, have seen this beauty. Many of you have experienced this. When you stand next to a good friend, someone you've known for 10 years or more, and you sing a song, and it's just, it's just wrenching you both at the heart, and you're praising the Lord together, and you know, I'm here with my friends, and we're singing our praises, and we're opening up God's word together, and we're being transformed. That's beautiful. Some of you really know that beauty. You felt that. Or when you are hurting and in need, and the people of God gather around you, and they minister to you, and they bring you meals, and they come and pray for you, and they come and sit with you and listen to you and talk to you, you know, you know the feeling of, of, of dew falling on a dry ground, don't you? You've seen that beauty. When you're together in a small group, maybe that's been together for 10 years, and you know this is the one place where I can go, and I know on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, when I walk into that room, I know I can let down my guard completely. I know these are the people that know me and love me and are bound to me fully and will do anything for me, and I know that I'm at home. You, you felt that beauty. Now, there's some of you probably who are here who, who, who haven't felt that at all. In fact, maybe if you're here and you're, and you're thinking, um, A, I'm not sure what I believe, or I'm pretty sure I'm not a Christian, and the biggest reason I'm not a Christian is because I've actually looked into the church and I don't see any beauty. In fact, I see a lot of ugliness and backbiting and fighting and division. There's a joke I heard recently. Um, I heard it in a sermon, actually, but this is, it was recently voted the number one religious-themed joke in the UK, and it goes like this. A guy's in San Francisco, and he's, he's walking, he's taking a walk, and he's walking across the, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, and he comes upon another man who's standing on the bridge, and he's about to jump off and take his life. And his first man says, what are you doing? You know, wh why would you do that? Why would you jump? And the guy says, well, you know, I just don't, I don't have any, anybody in the world. I don't have anything worth living for. And the first man says, well, let me just ask you this. Do you believe in God? And the guy says, yes, I do. And he says, well, I do too. See, that binds us. And he says, are you, are, are, are you, are you a Christian? And the guy says, yes, I am. And he says, well, I am too. He said, are you Catholic or Protestant? And the guy said, I'm Protestant. He says, me too. We're so close. And he said, well, what, what, what brand of Protestantism are you? And the guy said, Baptist. And he says, me too. I'm Baptist too. He said, well, are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And the guy goes, I'm Northern Baptist. And he says, I am too. He said, well, are Great Lakes region Northern Baptist or greater Chicago area Northern Baptist? And the guy goes, Great Lakes region. He says, me too. He says, Confession of 1925, Northern Baptist, Great Lakes Region, or Confession of 1889, Northern Baptist, Great Lakes Region. The guy says, Confession of 1889. And the first guy says, heretic. And he pushes him off the bridge. <clears throat> okay, the point is that very oftentimes what designates Christians are the things that divide them rather than the things that unify them. 
And by the way, the joke has the word Baptist in it, but you could have easily put Presbyterian in it, and it makes just as much sense, okay? Uh, Because what oftentimes people see from the outside when they look into the church is not something that's brothers dwelling in unity, but actually brothers and sisters fighting. They see a lot of division. Let me just say, if that's you this morning, first of all, I'm sorry. And second of all, that's not what the picture that God paints of the church What God says is beautiful and what he desires of his people is that they live in harmony, that they dwell in harmony with one another. There is a third category though. I think people who have have seen this beauty, those maybe who haven't seen it or, or who've been afraid of it. And then there's this third one. And I think this actually probably will hit most of us the hardest. And it's this, is that I think you probably have seen this kind of beauty and you just didn't see it as beautiful. I think you've experienced this beauty and you just didn't know it. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a small group with some other people and they just weren't people you knew all that well? Or they weren't people you got along with all that well? And you come to the group and you think, oh gosh, these people again. And then that person, she's going to tell the same story that I heard last week and we're going to go on a rabbit trail and uh, And it's hard and it's just kind of like, crunchy all the time, and it takes a lot of work and a lot of patience and a lot of difficulty. Guess what? God thinks that that's beautiful. God actually thinks that when his people get together, even in ways that take a lot of work on your behalf, even in ways that are hard, that take a lot of patience, God actually thinks that that's beautiful. Have you ever come to worship and you say, oh gosh, not this song again. (laughs) Do we have to sing this song? And why is the guitar so loud? And why is that person always just a little bit off pitch? And why is this preacher up here preaching another mediocre sermon? If you've ever thought that, and you may be thinking it right now, I want you to know God actually thinks that that is beautiful too. When his people get together, even in ways that are difficult, when they struggle to figure out what does it look like for us to praise the Lord with our gifts and to do so inadequately, when they open his word and they hear sermons that are oftentimes pretty mediocre, God actually thinks that that is beautiful too. Have you ever had to sit down across from another person and open yourself up in ways that were really dangerous and felt really vulnerable and felt like, you know what, if I open myself up in this way, they could hurt me. And this is super scary and I don't know what to do about it. Guess what? God actually thinks that that is beautiful too. Because God thinks that when his people get together in the beautiful, amazing, joyful, exceptional times and in the times that are difficult and take a lot of patience and feel really crunchy and are really hard, even in those times too, God says that it's beautiful when his people are together. When his people's lives and their hearts are unified with one another, God actually thinks it's beautiful. The problem is, is that oftentimes what we see as beautiful is not what God sees as beautiful. Because I tell you the truth, what I think is beautiful is me sitting by myself with a drink in my hand and a remote control, away from anybody else, not having to deal with community, not having to deal with other people's stuff, not having to wonder if I've got to be, uh, you know, somehow vulnerable to somebody else, or if I've got to deal with your insecurities. Ugh, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to worship with other people where things are just kind of crummy. I don't want to do any of that. I need my heart changed so that I see what is beautiful is what God says is beautiful. So let's talk about how to do that just real quick. I'm going to give you four little tips. They're very simple, but here they are. The first is this one. I think if we are going, if we are going to see, 
if we're gonna take on God's perspective on this, here's the first one is that we've got to show up. That means that you come to church even when it's kind of crummy. That means that you show up for your small group even when those people uh, that you don't really wanna share with are there. Woody Allen says uh, 80% of life is just showing up. I think he's right, (laughs) okay? A lot of it is just being there. Be there on time. Be there in the right place. Be there so that you can be present and be a part of things. Secondly, give up. Give up your own desires. It, there, there is no secret uh, to, to what Jesus is saying when he says that you've got to die to yourself in order to live for Christ. That you've got to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It, it requires us to give up what we oftentimes are holding on to very carefully and very tightly. We gotta give up a lot of our own desires in order to come and be a part of God's people and to lay them at Jesus's feet and say, I'm gonna come and actually give up what I want in order maybe that I might serve this person next to me. Because what I, this may be exactly what she wants. So that's the second one, give up our own desires. The third is this, open up. Open up our hearts in ways that are, that are oftentimes very frightening, that are oftentimes uh, very, that, that give us a lot of insecurity that are really scary because, uh, because opening yourself up to people that, that maybe you don't completely trust all the time, that's a hard thing to do. But that is, a, that is a big part of Christian community. And then the last one is this, just keep it up. Even when it's hard, even when it feels clunky, even when it feels like you're, you're driving a car with, with square wheels um, and it's hard to get somewhere, uh, don't give up, keep it up. Now, before we close, I do want to point out one more thing, and it's this word that keeps coming up in Psalm 133. I want you to look again at the text with me. Verse two, it says that how good and pleasant it is, and then it's like this. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard. There's that word running down. And then running down on the collar of his robes, that's the same word again. And then if you look at verse three, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. We translate it differently in English, but it's the same word in Hebrew. That repetition keeps coming up. This idea that what's coming to us, this blessing is actually coming down. It's cascading down and it finds its fullness here at the very last line. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. I want you to hear this really quickly. If you've been, if you've been dozing, wake up now. If you, uh, if you do not consider yourself a Christian, listen to this, because this is what I think is really good news, is that this community that we're talking about is not made just by your effort. It is actually a blessing given from the Lord. It is actually something that the Lord does for us. And it is something that the Lord has already begun in us, in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has actually come down. He has come down for us. He has left the perfect community of Father and Spirit and Son. And he has come down that we might be united to him and be a part of that community and that we might find community with one another. See, Jesus, the book of Hebrews says, is our high priest. He is the better Aaron. He is the high priest that's perfect who mediates between us and God. And not only is he the high priest, he's also the sacrifice that the high priest offers. He is the temple, he says of himself, where this celebration is. And for Jesus, it wasn't oil running down his head, but it was blood that spilled upon his shoulders. Blood that was spilled for us, that was given that he might live and die and be raised on our behalf that we might be united to God, that we might be in community, in communion with God and in community with one another. 
This is what Jesus has done for us. And the more that our community is centered upon that message, the more that our community is centered upon Jesus and who he is, the more beautiful it will become. And just like these pilgrims that were traveling to Jerusalem for these festivals, we're going somewhere too. Luke just did a whole series on this, on Revelation, that Jesus is making all things new. We're going somewhere. This world is going somewhere. And that is our great hope that our Lord has done and is continuing and will do something for us that we could never do, that binds us together with him and with one another. Amen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a, uh, what a wonderful privilege it is to be able to stand up here and proclaim this great news that you have brought us in communion with you, that you've made us one with you, and that you have also brought us into community with <coughs> with each other. Lord, in ways that are not always easy, <coughs> uh, community with people that are different than we are, community with people um, whose lives are at different stages than ours, uh, who, who have more or less money, or more or less children, or more or less fun, or better or worse jobs. This is the community you've brought us into, Lord, and you've told us that it's a blessing. So we ask that you would change our perspective, that we might see what is beautiful based on what you say is beautiful. We ask that you do this in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.